Grace and peace, beloved friends, and welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's, our weekly podcast that begins the weekly rhythm of learn, live, love, and lead. And it's our hope and prayer that in this podcast time that uh, we might be doing that learning and we can extend that learning to our Life Together groups, uh, to our other Bible study groups, that we might live uh, this out together and then come to worship as this text is preached. The things that we've been learning on and enriching ourselves in is preached and proclaimed and we practice loving God through that text, through worship together, that in all of it, we will lead our lives through what we have learned in Scripture, how we have lived that Scripture out, and how we've loved God through that Scripture. So we continue in our series called Relive, I almost said Relive, Relive, uh, where we are examining the resurrection accounts contained in the Gospels and how they speak into our lives lived, the stewardship of our lives How the resurrection of Jesus speaks into our legacy that we leave. So while last week we started with Luke's account, this week we are looking at Matthew's account. And again, it's always helpful to to break down a a larger uh, pericope into smaller uh, sections. And so uh, Matthew's resurrection account is found in Matthew 28. We can break it down into four sections. The first section is verse 1 through 7, where the two Marys discover the empty tomb. Then there's a small section, uh, verse 8 through 10, where the two Marys encounter the risen Jesus. And and then there's a a strange section uh, that's kind of odd and out there, but verse 11 through 15, we have a a guard interlude, a a step aside and and an account of what happens with these guards and uh, the religious leaders. And then our our primary text, verse 16 through 20, where Jesus appears uh, to the 11 in Galilee, and we have the Great Commission. So we're going to go through each of those sections, one piece at a time, making a few observations for us to think about and have conversations about throughout the week. So let's begin uh, with the first section, verse 1 through 7. I invite you to have your Bible out with you and uh, read along in, in your Bible. It's always helpful to have uh, the app out or in or your Bible and a pen and a highlighter to, to read along as we go. Uh, as we read scripture, uh, things come to our heart and our mind. So hear these words. Uh, this is Matthew uh, 28, verse 1 through 7. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the tomb. Look, There was a great earthquake, for an angel from the Lord came down from heaven. Coming to the stone, he rolled it away and sat on it. Now his face was like lightning and his clothes as white as snow. The guards were so terrified at him that they shook with fear and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, don't be afraid. I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here because he's been raised from the dead, just as he said. Come, see the place where they laid him. Now hurry, go and tell his disciples he's been raised from the dead. He's going on ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. I've given the message to you. 
So Matthew sets the scene with the day and time after Sabbath, which is the last day of the week, at dawn on the first day of the week. Remembering that the days begin and end at sunset. And so it's dawn, halfway, kind of almost halfway through the first day, Sunday, as the sun is rising. Now, while Luke does not name the women, if you recall from last week, Matthew does. Mary of Magdalene and the other Mary. Now, many scholars presume that this, is, this other Mary is Jesus' mother, And whatever the case may be, these two in Matthew, they witness the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. And now they witness the empty tomb and the angel's message. Here, Matthew makes some modifications of Mark's account. In Mark, the women are coming to anoint Jesus. But but here, the women, the Marys, only come to see the temple. With guards posted, anointing is impossible, and the, the body was already anointed in chapter 26. They don't wonder, as they do in Mark, who will roll away the stone. There's none of that, that dialogue that happens. They don't need it to be rolled away. And it's interesting that while the soldiers at the crucifixion are, are moved by Jesus' death, These guards here at the tomb are are shaken up by the earthquake and the opening of the tomb and the angel's appearance, and they become, the text says, like dead men. This is the first juxtaposition in our text. Jesus, who was dead, is now alive, and these guards who are alive are now like dead men. Matthew also replaces Mark's young man with an angel of the Lord. And the angel's words identify Jesus as the crucified one. I'm not going to get too geeky with the Greek for us, but the Greek here is, is a perfect tense, meaning that the act is a completed act with these ongoing consequences, implying that Jesus' crucifixion was not uh, temporary, a past event that is now nullified at the resurrection. No, The resurrection is a byproduct, is a consequence of the crucifixion, much like how we ended with Luke last week. The angel commands uh, the Marys to carry the message to the other disciples, now making the Marys not only the initial witnesses of the empty tomb, but also the first bearers of the message of the resurrection of our Lord. This resurrection message that he has been raised by God from the dead. Now in Mark, the the women are overcome with fear and kept silent. And that's where the story ends. But with Matthew and the Marys, the story continues. Matthew continues the story by adding joy to the note of fear. And And the women become positive figures who obediently go to tell the disciples. Lastly, the angel uh, tells the Marys to go to Galilee. And this is a bit of foretelling. Galilee, for Matthew, is not as much geographical as it is theological. It is the Galilee of the Gentiles, an appropriate setting for the Great Commission to all the nations that will come at the end of our text. So let's pick up uh, where we left off 
uh, with verse 8, 9, and 10. Hear these words. With great fear and excitement, they hurried away from the tomb and ran uh, to tell his disciples. In verse 9. But Jesus met them and greeted them. They, became, they came and grabbed his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go tell my brothers that I'm going into Galilee. They will see me there. Now, neither Mark or Luke reports an appearance of Jesus to the women. The scene is composed by Matthew. It is uniquely Matean. Here, Matthew, like Luke last week, is closer to John, the fourth gospel that sits out by itself. In John chapter 20, verse 11 through 18, Jesus has a conversation with Mary of Magdalene. But this is unique to Matthew, especially unique in the synoptic gospels. And so now, the women are not only the first witnesses of the empty tomb, but they are the first to encounter the risen Christ as well. And this scene is, is almost a doublet, or one scholar calls it an echo of what the angel has already said. Jesus tells them, uh, don't be afraid, and repeats the angel's commission. And there is a significant addition, something that's slightly different. The addition is the disciples is replaced with brothers. And we haven't seen the disciples, the 11, since they all deserted him and fled, uh, except for Peter who denied him. And this substitution, brothers, indicates Jesus' forgiveness of the ten who, who forsook him. I had fun typing that, forsook. And the one who denied him. The alienation has now been healed. From the divine side, at least. The disciples may now know that they again belong to the family of believers. So the Marys become not only missionaries, ministers, and preachers of the resurrection message, but they also become agents of reconciliation. And they hold his feet and worship him. Now, Deuteronomy 19.15 says that there must be two witnesses to hold something to be true. And since women were not regarded as competent witnesses in Jewish courts. It seems clear that their presence in this narrative, their presence and their role as proclaimers of the resurrection and the reconciliation, is a, is, makes it clear that in this narrative, it guarantees that it was not created to impress outsiders. This story seems to be cherished by the faith community in which the women play an indispensable role as witnesses to the power of God. As we think about legacy in this text, I wonder what role each of us play as witnesses to the power of God in our lives, in our church, in our surrounding community, and in our world. We bear the legacy of others who have borne witness to the power of God. And it's ours now to build a legacy 
of bearing witness to the power of God in our lives. Well, let's move on to the next section, verse 11 through 15. Now, as the women were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and told the chief priests everything that had happened. They met with the elders and decided to give uh, a large sum of money to the soldiers. They told them, say that Jesus' disciples came at night and stole his body while you were sleeping. And if the governor hears about this, we will take care of it with, uh, with him so you will have nothing to worry about. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were told. And this report was spread throughout all Judea to this very day. It's a strange interlude, isn't it? It's like you're just flipping channels uh, one from another on a television show. The narrative flow is interrupted with this insertion regarding the guards at the temple. There is, however, an interesting parallel that we can comment on briefly here. The Marys have been commissioned to go and tell the good news of the resurrection and reconciliation. And out of great joy and relationship, they do so. The guards here, who have seen the same things, they are paid to remain silent, really to tell the opposite, of, to be true. With Judas, money oils the wheels of hypocrisy, one scholar says. But here the sum is even greater. It costs more to suppress the resurrection message than to engineer the crucifixion. This juxtaposition, these polar opposites, the Marys are off to proclaim uh, and the soldiers are paid to lie. This shows once again the polar opposites of the, the two kingdoms represented throughout the gospel. And the choices each, and, uh, each of us have each and every day of which we will choose. Will we joyfully and fearfully and with great wonder proclaim the resurrected Lord, the reconciliation of Christ? Or will we lean towards what is more profitable and deny that Christ is risen? Oh, which leads to our last section and the focus text for our week. Verse 16 through 20. Now, the, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, uh, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Jesus came near and spoke to them. I have received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. <clears throat> now each gospel describes the commissioning of the disciples from the perspective of their own theology. We've been reading all four perspectives all year. And it's important to know the details with, with which Matthew tells his story. We saw last week, while Luke strictly limits the resurrection appearance to the Jerusalem area, 
Matthew follows Mark in locating the commissioning encounter in Galilee. John, uh, as we'll see next week, accommodates both of those traditions, but that's for next week. Matthew, uh, Matthew places uh, the appearance on the mountain. Mountains have played a significant role in Matthew's gospel. The final temptation in, in chapter 4, verse 8, the transfiguration in, in chapter 17, verse 1, both of these occur on a, on a high mountain. And of course, chapter 5, Matthew has Jesus preach and teach the Sermon on the Mount. The eleven returned to the mountain Jesus had appointed for their post-resurrection meetup in chapter 26. By the disciples showing up to this location, it speaks to them already coming to faith in the risen Jesus and the reconciling message that they are again his brothers. And the basis for this faith is not an appearance of Jesus. It hasn't happened yet. But the testimony of the Marys, which they trusted and they accepted and they believed. Oh, if we all would trust and accept and believe uh, the women who lead us so powerfully in faith. Oh, and here in 17, Jesus appears to them and they see him. It's interesting that, that Matthew does not describe the risen Jesus in any sort of detail. The event is narrated as though it were an ordinary, this-worldly event, one scholar calls it, a this-worldly event. Like the Marys, the Eleven response is not really amazement, or fascination, or curiosity, but their response is kneeling in worship. As discussed last week, there is an element of hesitation and doubt. Matthew saying here, but some doubted. Now, one scholar, as I was reading through this week, points out that doubt here is not a theoretical skepticism, but the risk wavering of the one who must decide when more than one possibility seems reasonable and right. The elements of worship, the scholar says, doubt and little faith exists permanently in the church after resurrection as it was before. Whatever the nature of the resurrection event, the scholar says, it did not generate perfect faith even in those who experienced it firsthand. It is not angels or perfect believers, but the worshiping, wavering community of disciples to whom the world mission is entrusted. I share this scholar's quote and insight to you because it is refreshing to me that the disciples all struggled with doubt as the early church did and as all of us do. But it's that worshiping, wavering community of disciples, us, to whom the world mission is entrusted. Well, as we're looking at verse 18, we can see that the, the fundamental idea that's underlying it is the conviction that Jesus, the Messiah, has been exalted through death and resurrection to the right hand of God. According to Matthew, 
Jesus is not waiting passively in heaven for his glorious arrival as judge and king, but he's already exercising his lordship as God's emissary and son. So the Great Commission here is therefore founded on Jesus' present lordship. It's not someday far away. It is here and now. And when thinking about this commission, the the target of the commission is all the Gentiles, the text says, which, which some of your translations may say all nations, because that's what that word is trying to do there, Gentiles. All of those who, who aren't Jewish, it's to go to them as well. This to all the nations, to Gentiles, is understood here to be a rescinding and replacing of the command in chapter 10, where it says it's just for Israel. You see, Jesus is expanding the mission, including Gentiles, including all, and hearing the good news of the resurrection of our Lord and the reconciliation of God to all humanity. After the resurrection, the invitation to discipleship is open to people of all nations, to all people. And this expansion is something that's been happening throughout Matthew. There's the the call to the fishermen in chapter 4, and then the the call to the tax collectors in chapter 9, and the rest of the 12 in chapter 10. This call is now expanded to all. The disciples of Jesus are to go, make disciples, and baptize them. Now, this uh, discipled, uh, oftentimes when I'm typing it, it will say I'm spelling it wrong, I'm not doing it right. But I love here that this is exactly what's happening, because that's what's happening in the Greek. The disciples of uh, Jesus are to be discipling, and this discipled is the verb of the word disciple. And it's only found here and in Acts 14, verse 21. Again, while previously Matthew used disciples exclusively exclusively for the inner group of 12 men who left everything to follow Jesus, Matthew tells this story in such a way that they become transparent to all Christians that all are disciples in this post-Easter church. Lastly, well, maybe not lastly, Um, The guidance of the Holy Spirit through the risen Lord wills the church to be universal and inclusive community for all nations. And the last observation I'd like to make about Matthew's resurrection account is in contrast a little bit with last week's Luke's resurrection account and Luke's gospel in Luke's gospel, the last word about Jesus speaks of a separation. It's over. They're gone. Jesus is gone. And in Matthew, by contrast, the last word promises Jesus, Jesus' continued presence. I am with you. It echoes back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. We were told that His name will be Emmanuel, God with us. 
And Matthew wants us all to know that Jesus is with us as we seek to do the work of the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Jesus commanded us, that Jesus is with us, that the resurrected Lord, who is seeking to reconcile us all back into the family, is with us, has given us this legacy to live, to be people who are disciple-making, who are disciple-making to all people, who are expressing and proclaiming the resurrection and reconciliation of the risen Lord to everyone. And that as we do so, we are not alone. Christ is with us. I hope and pray you have a blessed week uh, and a powerful conversation discussion. Look forward to seeing you on Sunday morning as we dive into this text more and worship and love God more fully.